This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business and globalization and the effects these developments have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today, we will be talking to Mark Wolf, consultant, executive coach and CEO of Lavafish Advisors based in New York City. Uh, Lavafish Advisors is a consultancy dedicated to helping business leaders address matters related to sustainability for long-term success. And Mark is also the founder and co-chair of the New York City chapter of the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. This is actually the second time that Mark has joined us on the show. And I've asked him back because the sustainability agenda, I think now has moved on to a new footing as we emerge from the emergency phase of the COVID uh, pandemic after a summer of extremities with uh, fire floods and hurricanes, an alarming IPCC report that sets out the ambition of the goal and the magnitude of the challenge of reaching net zero emissions by 2050 and as we await the COP26 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland in early November, which has been described as the world's best last chance to get runaway climate change under control. So welcome, Mark, and thank you very much for being here with us today again. It's great to be back, Patrick. Great to have you. So um, remind us, Mark, if you would, of uh, the activities and the services of, of your business and the types of clients that you work with and the kind of outcomes that they achieve by, by working with you. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's really three parts to my practice. The first is doing sustainability consulting, which ranges from uh, creating a sustainability report for an organization that's never had one before, updating one that has been published in prior years, um, looking at goals, benchmarks, um, and activities toward getting to a uh, net zero carbon economy for that organization. Um, I, I've been spending time recently particularly focusing on the one area under the task force for climate-related financial decisions, um, which is really, the, in my mind, one of the things most aligned with how do you align the dollars that an organization earns with how they're using planetary and nature resources. Um, and one of the aspects of that, which I'm particularly skilled at, and this is new, it's only been out for four years, but um, a lot of investment companies are using it, uh, a lot more uptake in European and the UK sector than there's been in the US sector right now. Michael Bloomberg currently chairs it. But one of the areas where I bring a particular set of skills is there is a scenario analysis. I mean, in past years, it might have been called, you know, futurist scenarios, but now there is scenario analysis to say what things that are just so out of the box that no one's even thought of yet, have you looked at and decide how your business would respond should that come to occur? So let's say 40% of your workforce is in Southeast Asia and the monsoon season is so bad that people don't have homes to live in, electricity to turn their equipment on, can't live their lives and can't show up for work. And that's 40% of your workforce. What are you doing to adapt, mitigate and become resilient in the face of that potentially happening in the future. And I use the word potentially, um, it's the word that I have been using, but I think with this, the summer of storms, fires, um, and everything else that's been going on with, with nature uh, and the planet letting us know that it's really at its boundaries in terms of supporting human life. You know, we think that we control the planet, but the planet actually has its entirely own rhythm. Um, what are you doing to strategically prepare your business What's your um, nature disaster recovery plan for the unthinkable? 
And that requires both an internal and external set of experts taking a look at um, everything that's out there. I mean, there are companies right now that provide um, basically weather risk to physical plants around the, around the globe. I mean, that's fairly easy to get to. But it isn't just about the physical risk. I mean, um, I believe that in this, you know, in the, it's not going to take another 100 years before we see another global pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, the Spanish flu to COVID was 100 years. It's not going to take 100 years to get to the next one. So what are you putting in place um, to be able to adapt and be resilient to that? So that's, would you, go ahead. Would you, would you link uh, a phenomenon like this pandemic to global change? Do you think that the two things are related? And if you do, in what way are they related? Well, I think I think it is, you know, tied to um, to climate change in the sense that all of the um, pe- the human population on the planet and and all of the countries that have businesses are interlinked in the way that. Um, in, in this global economy that we've never had. So uh, I just watched a bunch of 9-11 documentaries because in New York, or, and my wife was in New York on 9-11 and we have our own stories about that. And, you know, there was segments that looked at the prior president of the United States talking about this being the Chinese flu. And while the, the flu itself did originate in Wuhan, China, in terms of the New York epicenter, which had, you know, an ungodly toll in the New York City area, that variant was actually coming in from Europe. Yeah. So I think it is linked because you know air travel was was open and and widely available even as this thing was starting, mm-hmm. and people were focusing on that on that mm-hmm. one country. And it was not you know while there's a, a something of a of a coordinated global economy with supply chain which has been severely severely disrupted by this, and in terms of finance and in terms of you know world some kind of um, cooperative agreements at the United Nations and how we're going to deal with climate change, uh, certainly there was not a global response to this pandemic, much like there was 100 years ago. Yeah. I was thinking as well, perhaps there's a relationship between the pandemic and climate change in the sense that, or maybe not so much climate change, but humans putting the planet under pressure in the sense that people are, are beginning to live in areas that's bringing them more into contact with parts of the world where they wouldn't have been in contact before. And then the other bit that you say with how connected the world is. So, for example, it's not altogether clear where the virus started in China, but let's say it started in bats in some place, in some forest somewhere. And then it's because people in China now, with the expansion of China's economy and, and the population, although the population growth there has slowed, people are coming into contact with parts of nature that probably were best left alone um, and did you think that's happening and there's potential for that to continue to happen in, in Africa? Because Africa is going to develop a lot in the next uh, number of decades, I guess. So I guess the, the, the chances of people encroaching on areas is probably re- rising as well, right? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably not as focused on that aspect as I am on over the next, I mean, we're starting to see it now, but over the next 10, 15, 20 years, the concept of climate refugees in terms of of large movements of human populations moving away from land that can't support them with the basic needs of of food and shelter, um, that climate refugees are going to become much, much more of a problem. And I think, you know, businesses um, in terms of how they operate are going to need to factor that in as well. Take New York City as an example. Until about 30 years ago, New York City used to take all its trash, put it on barges and dump it in the ocean. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? With no sorting or anything, right? It's like, and, and then, you know, then there became a point where we knew, you know, we knew better and we started to act differently. Anyway, let me circle back to the original question, if I might, about what else I do in my practice. So um, I do work with executives and do executive coaching in organizations where, you know, getting the message from the mid-level to the, to the executive level, the MD level, um, is running into resistance and working you know, one-on-one with execs to do that strategy. And I've also um, this year been doing a lot of work in the um, uh, career coaching space, both one-to-one and, and, uh, and in groups with people who have 20 or 25 or 30 years of work experience and looking to pivot their career without a whole lot of knowledge around sustainability into sustainability because they want to have more impact in, the, in, in their role. And they see where things are headed, whether they've had a family member or personal experience with a flood, a fire, um, you know, a, uh, a mudslide, um, you know, people not here because of some, you know, something happening and saying, you know, I want to go make a, di- a difference. You know, I recognize that we're not changing fast enough. Um, and how do you go successfully navigate that when um, the job application systems are basically set up to use artificial intelligence to read resumes and look for a perfect algorithm fit as opposed to a human being mm-hmm. that could excel in the position. Yeah, so it's interesting you, you mentioned that because I had a question I wanted to ask you whether you have noticed a change among corporate executives in, in recent times and the kind of a more genuine sense of urgency and seriousness regarding the transition to net zero, or is it still more of a kind of being seen to be doing and saying the right things kind of attitude that dominates? Do you think there's been a change or is it, is it, is it happening or where do you think we are with that? Well, I think it's different regionally. I mean, certainly um, I look to Europe and the, and the, and the UK pre-Brexit um, is really being much further ahead than the United States on all of these things, but there are, quite a number of U.S. corporations that have gotten involved in purchase power agreements who have gotten involved in uh, providing funds to build wind farms. Um, You know, there was a 20-year fight about putting a wind farm off the coast of Massachusetts because it might block some uh, names that we won't mention, but they're considered political science in the the U.S. system, might block their view from their vacation home. Um, And that project (laughs) is actually moving, moving forward at this point. Um, the fact is, is that there are a lot of farmers who have had a lot of variability in their weather that are actually surviving because they put uh, wind, wind turbines on their farm and they're selling electricity. Um, and that becomes actually um, because they're in places that get such uh, tremendous constant wind during daylight hours that they're actually able to count on that as a revenue screen where crops are a much more of a, um, a risky proposition with all of the changes that we have going on right, going on right now. Okay, so going back to the uh, the IPCC report, which came out uh, earlier uh, this this summer, uh, which I I read part of. I read the the the, the summary part related to freight transport, which was of, of interest uh, to me. Um, but what were the most important points from the IPCC report that that you would point to for businesses, say, who want to do actually want to get serious about decarbonizing their activities? Well, I think for me, if, if you're not taking um, measure of scope one, scope two, and, and scope three emissions, which are clearly the hardest one to get your arms wrapped around, that's the supply chain emissions. If you're not fully measuring those, setting goals, and moving to get down there, then the amount of catch-up you have to do when you get serious about it starts to become insurmountable. So I've seen some models that, that said two years ago, 
if you were a company setting out to hit a 50% reduction in your carbon emissions from 2020 to 2030, so over a 10-year period, that meant that um, you had to reduce them 8% a year, year over year over year for 10 years to get to a 50% reduction. If you started one year later, you were at 11%. So in a nine-year time frame, now you have to do 11% improvement each year, for, and that just gets you to a 50% reduction. If you start in 2022, and we're just around the corner from that, so if you've done nothing, now it's 14%. So yeah. I, think, I think what the IPCC thing did was, for me, was two things. It was a, for lack of a better term, a nervous breakdown about, okay, we can't put our heads in the sand anymore. If we don't do anything, these things are happening and will continue to happen, and, and there's nothing we can do to go turn back the hands of time. There's nothing that's mm-hmm. going to change that is number one. And I think number two, scientists who um, have been trained in their in their professional careers to be neutral and not to put, you know, emotion or biases in what they're finding. But here are the findings and people go out and replicate the findings. Scientists are at this point saying, you know, I should have actually um, been much more in people's face and much more aggressive about what the implications of these findings were 30 and 40 years ago, because we've known I mean, this, the fires that we're seeing, the, the mudslides, the, 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 the rains, the strength of storms, the displacement of people, this, this has all been predict, predicted as, as, as 40, 45 years ago. I mean, there has been a group of people who have seen us in what we're living in now happening, and yet it's the same group of people that had a failure of communication relative to fossil fuel companies who had a, um, a much better way of kind of diffusing and deflecting to, you know, actually, um, you know, making changes. You mentioned the previous uh, U.S. administration that kind of at the federal level, the U.S. kind of opted out for a number of, of, of years. Um, but I understand in the U.S. that at city level and at state level, uh, quite a lot was achieved uh, during that period. And now it seems the federal government is kind of back on board. I think Biden has basically announced that, you know, um, this, this, this needs to be done. Um, and, yes. Uh, would that align with what you see? Well, that, no, that is aligning with what I'm seeing in, ter- in terms of the words. But, you know, let's take a look at, you know, New York City, which, which was suffered, you know, terrible damage from Hurricane Sandy. Well, you know, three weeks ago, we had a hurricane come through where people were drowning in their basement apartments because it rained so, so much so fast. People couldn't get out of a, of a one-door base, basement apartment. And even with all of the um, uh, improvement in the imp- in the infrastructure from Hurricane Sandy. I mean, it wasn't like anyone, you know, said, well, and that, that'll never happen again. I mean, there was proactive action taken to it. You know, the entire region was shut down for a couple of days. Um, you know, train service, which which accounts for uh, a su- substantial proportion of um, how goods get moved through the northeast corridor of the United States, came to a standstill because of the damage to tracks from, from that one storm. Yeah. Do you concur then with the idea expressed by some about COP26 conference, uh, which I mentioned in the intro, that it is the world's best last chance to get this cl- uh, climate change under control? Well, yes, and I, I agree with that statement. And I also actually felt it was true when um, the U.S. opted into the Paris Accords to COP25 five years ago. Yeah. Um, and certainly if... If everybody had put strategies in place and taken bigger steps than had been taken, and certainly at the regulatory level, I think that's a piece that's really that's really missing, um, missing right now. Um, 
it was it was it was missing then. Well, it was missing in the four years that that we had the previous administration in charge in charge of the White House. Um, I think that um, that was really our last best chance. Now it's like the house is on fire, and we can't ignore it anymore. And before it's like the flames were you know ten feet away from the house. Yeah. Um, so we're going to lose a bit of the structure, right? But you know we may be able to save the rest of the house, or at least save the, save our, our way of life. But it's not going to ever look the same as it did before the fire hit the house. Yeah, yeah. So, what would you consider then the success coming out of this coming conference? That's a great question. So, I think it's twofold. It's one is it's not the um, not necessarily the the commitments because a lot of commitments will be made. But this, to me, the success will be if a year after um, COP twenty six, we actually see substantial progress on. Uh, reduction in use of carbon fuels and moving a lot more toward renewables. I mean, you know, right now in the United States, it's crazy, but gas and oil extraction still gets subsidies from the federal government in terms of tax breaks. And we're still fighting over whether or not to to provide um, uh, tax credits. The Republicans are fighting over whether to provide tax breaks for solar and wind and geothermal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, that's what we, that's what we need to, you know, have a sustainable planet. I mean, look, in, in, in my view, a hundred years from now, planet earth will be here and there will be some forms of life on planet earth, whether it will be hospitable to human life as you and I know it. Um, it's a big question mark. And, and I think COP 26 is like, it's our last chance to actually address the question where yes, it will be hospitable to human life. Okay, so uh, back at the kind of day-to-day level, what kind of initiatives are you seeing companies in different sectors getting involved in now? Well, I think there's two things going on. One is that the next two generations of the workforce that's coming in, millennials and Gen Z, are basically want to work for companies that are doing good. So companies could get away with greenwashing for quite a while in in terms of consumers, but they can't get away with greenwashing when their own employees are on the inside and see what's what's really going on. So I think it's a you know a massive reduction in the amount of energy that's being used, the amount of waste that's being created, the the inefficient use of natural resources, um, and the fact is is that there are a number of different internationally recognized models to measure, set goals, manage, and reduce you know reduce waste. I mean, there's a um, a garment manufacturing company in, I'm not exactly sure we're in Southeast Asia, that is that has figured out how to make a pair of jeans with less than a gallon of water, where the rest of the industry that manufactures jeans, which seems to be not the garment of choice during a pandemic when we're sitting behind Zoom screens, um, you know, could take anywhere from 28 to 103 gallons of water to make that one pair of pants. And you have a large proportion of the population that does not have access to uh, clean water. And that goes for the United States as well as the rest of the globe. And it's interesting that often when we think from a business perspective about going green, we think there's a green premium for everything. It's going to cost us more, say, to use biofuels, or it's going to cost us more uh, if we use uh, low-carbon cement or low-carbon steel or whatever. Uh, but there are instances, I think, where we will actually be quids in, if you like, in the sense that going green can make things more efficient and more cost-effective. Um, would you would you agree with that? Do you think there are opportunities? Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things 
you know, certainly um, UK, Europe, and small parts of the United States is this focus on circular economy. How do you basically take somebody else's trash and turn it into your feedstock when you're manufacturing something and taking ownership at end of life so you can come back and, um, and reuse the things that are reusable? Now, I, did, I did a paper actually in graduate school. I mean, aluminum mining, we think about aluminum cans, aluminum foil, you know, aluminum as a uh, manufacturing parts and heavy machinery and stuff like that. I mean, that is a, that, that mining is, 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 any mining is dirty. Aluminum mining is particularly dirty. But I, but I did a project that basically said, you know, um, approximately 75% of all the aluminum that's ever been mined in the globe is um, basically in landfills as waste. Well, why are, we, why are we going and mining for virgin material when we could actually just go in through our own garbage yeah, and, yeah. and recycle aluminum that's already been mined? Yeah, so our, our landfills in the future will become mines probably, right? Well, you certainly see that in a lot of dystopian end-of-the-world type movies where people are foraging <laughs> through junk piles and landfills to find something that was, you know, trash before the event happened and is now a useful item, you know, yeah, yeah. post anything being made. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm working on a project at the moment here in, in Europe where we're looking at encouraging companies to move more freight from road to rail because the grams of CO2 per tonne kilometer in rail are far lower than, than uh, in road transport. And it's interesting talking to different companies about a project like that and, you know, would they embrace it from a green credentials point of view? And um, a lot of the bigger companies and manufacturing companies say, yes, absolutely, a project like that. There are people here who are going to be all over that. They're very interested in that. But when you move down <laughs> down the chain and you get kind of into some of the smaller, you know, mid-sized companies or uh, ones that are operating in more basic sectors like transport or warehouse, and they're kind of going, well, you know, it's not really on our agenda. But here in Europe, at least, I know from IPCC and at the European Union level and our national level in countries like Ireland, a lot of this stuff is going to become mandatory uh, quite soon. Yes. So what, so what would you say to companies that have not had this on their agenda so far? You know, they've been asleep at the, at the wheel. Where would, you advise, where would you advise them to start? Well, I mean, you know, there are things that big companies do that are um, not wonderful. And then there are things and bets that big companies place that kind of make you scratch your head and say, how can I adapt that for myself? And I'm thinking of Amazon, which has ordered 100,000 electric delivery vehicles from a company that's never manufactured one before. I'm thinking of Amazon that has played with, well, can we deliver by drone? Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm thinking about, um, I mean, right now you mentioned millennials and Gen Z before. You know, used to be, I think when you and I were growing up, having a driver's license was was basically, you know, freedom. And for them, it's like Uber and Lyft is freedom. They don't, they're not interested in learning how to drive because you know what? It's complicated and stressful. And I'm thinking about, you know, in terms of the aging population, because one of my earlier careers was social work. People are homebound because they don't have the physical capacity to drive anymore. Well, you know, we're probably 10 years away, I would say, from safe self-driving cars at a, at a mm. to scale. Um, what happens when, you know, you can order up a self-driving car? 
Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. that that then that changes life for a lot of people in terms perhaps, of perhaps cars will become you know the um, the domain of uh, aficionados. You know, people who you know who have cars as a, as a hobby. Most of us, like for, for me, a car is really just transport, isn't it? And transport is a service, perhaps even a utility. But at some point in the future. Yeah. You'll you'll you you'll purchase on demand using technology. Yeah, I mean there are companies that are that are working on that working on that model right now, and I think I think the other thing is that you know for companies that are not looking at uh, the transportation piece, there's a whole um, ecosystem I think around you know the support system for manufacturing and distribution. You know, are you using packing materials that are made from um, natural feedstocks? You know, like you know. Um, Sugarcane, right? Are you still using peanuts that are, that, you know, packing peanuts in your packaging that are being made from um, fossil fuels versus, you know, are you using popcorn, you know, as, as a packaging material? You know, what are you doing to make your thing, you know, lighter, more resilient, um, easy to, you know, easy to swap out parts, that, that kind of thing, as opposed mm-hmm. to, um, you know, uh, just throw it away and get a new one. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So what, what, what plans have you got for your own business uh, strategy over the next couple of years? What, what kind of um, initiatives are you looking at? Well, I think the, big, the biggest one is um, we're actually looking at, um, at um, solar. On, so it, it, I mean, our offices are, um, are based out of, uh, out of the home. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's more of an entrepreneurial model and actually looking at putting, um, putting solar on not because it would lower the cost as, as a homeowner, because it will pay itself back over time, but more as a way to reduce our use of carbon fuels. Okay, excellent. And do you have any book or uh, podcast ebook recommendations for us in, in this space that you would uh, recommend to listeners or maybe that have inspired you recently? Yeah, um, I, I don't know if I mentioned this book last time we spoke, Patrick, but um, Daniel Gergen, who's a, a has been an advisor to a number of different U.S. presidential administrations uh, in the energy sector, uh, wrote a book recently called The New Map. And I was really inspired by his taking a look at, at energy production and society going back as, you know, back into the, even to the 800s um, and, and forward in terms of understanding um, the power shifts that are going on right now because of, you know, the move you know, with, with U.S. being a shale oil um, you know, fracking and shale oil production, um, you know, the uh, the ability to generate uh, wind and, and solar. I mean, it, it's, it's shifting um, a lot of geographic assumptions about relationships. And it was also, I thought, really useful to understand why there's so many <clears throat> sectarian conflicts, what the, you know, what the historical foundations for them were. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Interesting. So it's called the new math, and the author the is Daniel. New, the new map, M A P. New oh, the new map. Okay, the new map, and the author is Daniel Gergen, G E R G I N. Daniel Gergen. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Mark. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure to talk to you as as always, and wish you uh, continued success both personally and professionally. Thank you. And one thing, I, if I if I can, I do have a um, I do offer. Um, career coaching at a group level and I do have a new program starting a week from tomorrow so if people would like to learn more about that they can go to sustainabilitycareercoach.com 
sustainabilitycareercoach.com. Okay, if you're interested in in that particular program. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. And uh, thanks to listeners again for tuning in. Any comments or questions, drop me a line on pdaily, P-D-A-L-Y, at Alba Logistics. That's A-L-B-A logistics.com. And keep well and stay safe until next time. Thank you.